Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is Podcast 181. All week, we're talking about the mysteries of God, those things that have been hidden in the heart of God and are now made plain to us. The Apostle Paul was the one that was chosen to give many of these mysteries to the church of God, to those who are followers of Jesus. And so all week, we've been looking at some of these mysteries. There are several in the New Testament. This week, we're looking at four. The mystery of the incarnation called the mystery of godliness. How would God come to earth? How would he become as a man? How would he redeem those who are under the law? How would he redeem those who are without the law? Well, all of that is summed up in the great mystery of godliness when God revealed it. And we looked at First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 primarily, along with John chapter 1. The mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in to the great covenant promises of Abraham. How could it ever be? The prophets did not understand it. The angels did not understand it. But God had a plan all along. And so we looked at the book of Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 3, in those great passages, learned that God, before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, laid all of this out. You see, this should give us great comfort knowing that God is in control. And tomorrow we're going to look at the mystery of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit living in us. It was a great mystery, but God has now revealed it. But today we're going to look at something that has been controversial down through especially the last century, and that is what is called the rapture of the church. And I want us to look at a couple of passages one is First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We could go all the way into chapter 5 and verse 11, and we may do that if we have time. But I want to start out in First Thessalonians chapter 4, dealing with this aspect of the rapture. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessaloniki, who was greatly disturbed because false teachers had come and said that the resurrection was past, their loved ones would already have missed the resurrection. Paul said, but I do not want you to be ignorant. The word is agnao. Agnao, of course, means uh, to know. You put an alpha privative, an A, in front of something in the Greek text, then that negates whatever concept it's tied to. Agnao means don't know, no knowledge. And so an atheos, someone who is an atheist, has chosen to believe there is no God, but someone who's an agnostic says, I genuinely do not know. There may be a God, there may not be a God. Paul said, I don't want you to be agnostic about this. I don't want you to be ignorant about this, brethren. He's writing to believers concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow not as others who have no hope. You see, when a believer dies, 
there is sorrow. There's sorrow in our hearts because we will no longer physically be with them. But we are not to sorrow as others who have no hope, who have no expectation. The word hope is expectation. The reason is we as believers know that the grave is not the end for the child of God, that we will be reunited one day. Now, that's the teaching and the hope and the expectation of the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul, when he was giving his great defense at Caesarea, he said, I am being brought to trial because of the hope of our ancestors, the hope of the resurrection, that there's more to life than this life. And when he talks about sleep, he's talking about physical death. You see, sleep is a term that is used interchangeably with physical death. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through this because I've already done a podcast on this, but all you have to do is read through the story of the death of Lazarus and Jesus referring to the death of Lazarus as him sleeping, and the disciples didn't get it. And Jesus said, when I'm talking about him being asleep, I'm saying he's dead. Why? Because physical sleep refers to physical death. When the Bible talks about death in this regard, it is talking about physical death. You see, the resurrection is of the physical body. It means to stand again. Anastasia means to stand again. It's talking about the physical body standing again. It is put down in death and it is raised in life. There is no such thing in the Bible as resurrection of the soul or resurrection of the spirit. It's always physical resurrection. He says, for if we believe, that's a rhetorical question, first-class conditional sentence in the Greek text, which assumes the reality. For if we believe literally means since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so will God bring with him those who sleep, those who have died in Jesus. For this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede, go before those who have died, who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Now the word caught up is the word harpazo in the Koine Greek. In the Latin Vulgate, it is the word wrapped. It's the idea of a rapture, a snatching away, a catching away. It's a sudden catching away. And so he says, we'll be caught up together. We'll be raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When he goes into chapter five, remember, there's no chapter or verse divisions in the original text. It just starts a new paragraph, but really not a new thought. He continues on and talks about the day of the Lord, how that will not overtake us as a thief because we are children of light not children of darkness. We are children of salvation, not of wrath. And so I want to ask you to mark your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and then turn when you get an opportunity back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the apostle Paul speaks of this same circumstance of the resurrection at the coming of Jesus. 
the Apostle Paul was answering a question about the resurrection. And as you know, 1 Corinthians was written to the Apostle Paul after he had been one of his longest stays at any place. He had left, and the people had really messed everything up and were writing him and saying, we're doing this, what should we do about this? And everything they were doing was wrong. Their assumptions were wrong. And so the Apostle Paul wrote what is called 1 Corinthians to answer questions. So beginning at chapter 5 all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, literally through the end of the chapter, the last chapter, he's answering questions. And chapter 15 is an answer he gave about the resurrection. So he made it very clear, beginning at the paragraph in chapter 15, verse 50. Now this I say unto you, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, we can't go to heaven like this. We can't go to heaven in this body that we have. It has to be changed. Everybody's not going to die. But if you back up to verse 46, the paragraph preceding this, it talks about how that there is a earthly body and there's a heavenly body. There's a fleshly body and there is a spiritual body, physical and spiritual. And so he said, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. He's talking about the resurrection, that everybody has to die. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. But he said, Behold, I tell you a mysterion, a mystery. Here it goes. We will not all sleep. Everybody's not going to die. There's a generation that is going to be on the earth when Jesus comes. But we shall all be changed. We all have to be changed. We can't go to heaven in these physical bodies. So our bodies, if we are alive at the coming of Jesus, at the rapture of the church, we're going to be changed instantaneously in a moment at the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That's what the scripture says. The rapture of the church has been debated now, especially, as I said, in the last century. So what is the rapture of the church, and when does it happen, and uh, who's involved in it? Well, let's try to answer some of those questions. First of all, the rapture of the church, to just help you to understand and distinguish between that and the return of Jesus to the earth, and that's the big question, is Jesus coming to the earth to set up his kingdom, or Jesus coming back, as the millennials would say, because they don't believe in a literal physical kingdom. They spiritualize and allegorize all of that. We're not even going to deal with that today because that is preposterous in light of the hermeneutical principle that I'm going to be sharing with you that is consistent with the hermeneutical principle concerning salvation. You see, the rapture as presented in the Bible is a movement of earth toward heaven. That is, those on earth, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is a movement of those who are on earth toward the sky, toward the Lord, it is a move from earth to heaven. The return of Jesus is a movement of heaven to earth. Years ago, John Walford was with me, the former president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He was with me in San Diego, and I asked him, how can I explain the rapture of the church in contradistinction to the return of Christ to the earth? And he's the one that told me that. He said, Tony, you have to get the people to understand that the Scripture teaches that the rapture is when people on the earth are caught up. They are moving toward heaven. Jesus 
return to earth called his second coming is a movement of heaven to earth when Jesus will move from the heavens to the earth. And that's very important. You say, well, the rapture is not taught here. The rapture is not. The rapture was a mysterion. It was something that was hidden in the heart of God. The apostle Paul said, I'm going to show you now this mystery. That's what first Corinthians chapter 15 says. It's plain. And so the rapture was a mystery. It was hidden. Jesus didn't talk about it, you see, in the Gospels. Why? Because it was not time for the mystery to be revealed. Now, for those of you who do not believe it is a mystery, Jesus spoke of mysteries, and he said that this was now being revealed. This will be revealed. Daniel was told to shut up the words of the prophecy until the time was right. This is nothing new in the Bible, but when it comes to the rapture, we have our own agenda instead of following the hermeneutical principles of the Bible. You see, just like other doctrines are unfolded and unpacked in the epistles that Jesus introduced and that Jesus spoke of in general terms, so it is with this idea of the rapture. Now, people will say, well, if you teach the rapture, then people are not going to prepare for the great tribulation. They're going to be caught off guard. Everybody's going to go through tribulation. Well, of course, Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. You'll have You'll have crushing. You'll have persecution. All of those things. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's not what the great tribulation is. The Megale Thlipsis, the great tribulation, is a time of unprecedented, unparalleled trouble on the earth. It is a time referred to by the prophets as the time of Jacob's trouble, of Israel's trouble. It's a time when Israel is going to be persecuted like never before. The Holocaust will seem as incredible as it is to think and as unthinkable as it is to think, it will seem like a drop in the ocean because Israel will be persecuted. The whole earth is going to be under the wrath of God. During that great tribulation period, the Antichrist, the great deceiver, is going to come. It'll be the personification of Satan himself with deceiving and lying wonders. The Bible says during that period, if it were not for the grace of God and the shortening of the days, even the very elect would be deceived. Now, this is how bad it's going to be. This is not general persecution. This is not, as some would say, just general persecution. This is a time that Jesus even spoke of as unprecedented and unparalleled. And this is what the book of Revelation teaches. Now, many times people say, well, why is it that you really believe? What is it that turned the key for you that you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture? Well, if I'm going to study any book in the Bible, I'm going to follow the same hermeneutical principle. If I'm going to study about the church of Jesus and how to organize it and how to put it together. I'm going to sure look at the pattern of the New Testament in the book of Acts, but the apostle Paul wrote to two young protégés, Timothy and Titus, and told them how they ought to behave themselves in the church of God, the local church, the pillar of the truth. So I would go to the pastoral epistles. If I was going to deal with questions in the church, I'd go to 1 Corinthians. If I was going to deal with salvation and and learn about salvation, then teach about salvation, I would go to the book of Romans and secondarily to the book of Galatians. If I was going to learn about the life of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, I wouldn't go to James, his half-brother. I would go to the Gospels. I think you get the drift. Well, how is it that we do that on everything except eschatology? the doctrine, the study of last things. 
because you see the key book that tells us more about the future events than any other is the book of Revelation and my millennial friends just totally allegorize that and say all of that's already come to pass or it's just a huge story like Pilgrim's Progress an allegory of the life and times of believers on the earth. Well that's just very inconsistent because you see the Bible says that it is the key book on the future and any eschatological framework that you use must use the book of Revelation as the key to understanding it. You see, Jesus spoke of things and he didn't tell the mystery about the rapture. It is a mystery. You cannot get around 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was something that was hidden in the heart of God. Jesus didn't reveal it. He talked about it in mysterious ways. Even in the other epistles, it is not clearly delineated. But the book of Revelation is the key to understanding all biblical prophecy. It is the capstone. You cannot understand Daniel and have it explained and expounded without understanding the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is indeed the capstone of biblical revelation itself. The book of Genesis, many of the things that were began there were completed in the book of Revelation. And so the book of Revelation has a very distinct outline in chapter 1 and verse 19, where it talks about the things that were happening on the earth at that time, the things that John had just seen on the Isle of Patmos when he was exiled there by the Roman emperor. And then in chapter four, he starts talking about the things which will be after these things that he was living through and that we're living through. Those are futuristic things. They're still futuristic things. They have never happened on the earth in any time in recorded history. Beginning at Revelation chapter 4, John is no longer on the earth. He is in heaven. I believe that is a picture of the church being snatched away, being wrapped away and taken up into heaven. And from that point on, you are getting a two-plot story, what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven. We're familiar with that kind of address and plot today uh, with modern TV shows. And uh, we see dual plots going on all the time, uh, flashback to what's happened before, what's happening in the future. So the book of Revelation is the key to understanding future events because it was written for that purpose. If you want to understand about Jesus and his kingship, his uh, lordship, turn to the gospel of Matthew. If you want to learn about him being the obedient servant of uh, his father in heaven, turn to the gospel of Mark. If you want to learn about the birth details and you want to learn about his humanity, turn to the gospel of Luke. If you want to learn about his divinity and his deity, turn to the gospel of John. The book of Acts, the early church, on and on. Why is it that all of a sudden we come to the book of Revelation, then we turn away from it? I'll tell you why, because it doesn't fit into someone's theological grid, and so they have to spiritualize and allegorize it. Again, I would say to those of you who disagree with me, that's just fine. I have come to the conclusions in my own mind based on a solid hermeneutic that is consistent with salvation, our walk with God, and eschatology. And so the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. It is imminent. It was the hope of the early church that before Nero's sword could fall on their head and sever it from the rest of their body, that the Lord Jesus would appear in the skies and uh, it would be the voice of the archangel, the trump of God would sound. Uh, it was the hope of the early church. Nothing has to happen in biblical prophecy for the rapture to take place. It is something that's mysterious. It's something that's going 
going to happen as a thief in the night. Two will be at the meal. One will be taken, the other left. Two will be in bed. One will be taken, the other left. That means worldwide. Some are in bed. Some will be working in all time zones. But there's going to be a great snatch. There's going to be a great taking away, a rapture. Then there's going to be seven years of tribulation, uh, three years of terrible deceit, and then unprecedented, unparalleled chaos and the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. If indeed the numbers are accurate, and I believe they are, with our present population means that over two billion with a B will be killed at one time during the Great Tribulation. We've not even dreamed of anything that that horrible, but that's going to happen. A third of all the green grass and trees are going to be burned up at one time. A third of the fresh water is going to be polluted. And so this is an incredible time of crushing. None on earth have ever witnessed this or seen this. But the Bible says the Lord Jesus will come at the end of that tribulation period. He will judge the leaders of the earth in the eastern valley, in the valley of Kidron, called the valley of Jehoshaphat, the place where God will judge. That's what Jehoshaphat means. And he will judge there, and then he will set up his kingdom. He will rule from Jerusalem, and that is when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the babe will play on the hole of a cobra. Well, for On The Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.